Um, open your Bibles, if you would, to First uh, Corinthians eleven. I'll have to abbreviate my comments in light of the time. First Corinthians eleven is the one of the main passages that we have in the New Testament on the Lord's Supper, or what some call communion. And it's often read before the supper is taken, but I wanted to discuss some things here in the text with you today. Verse 23 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Um, now, what we see here in, in these verses are really two purposes for the Lord's Supper. Now, they're related, but they can also be discussed separately. The first purpose is to remember. Okay? Do this in remembrance of me. So we need to be reminded on a regular basis. Some, some churches partake of the Lord's Supper weekly, some monthly, some only once a year, which I personally think is not often enough. Because we need to be reminded of the foundation of our relationship with God, which is the sacrifice of Christ. We need to be reminded that we stand in grace and that we relate to God through grace and not through works. We need, we need to be reminded of God's great love for us. We need to be reminded of Christ's sacrifice. We need to be reminded of many things, and we need to be reminded on a regular basis because we tend to forget. Not that we forget absolutely, but we forget practically. We forget relatively, if you will. So we are to, to bring to remembrance fundamentals of our faith when we take the Lord's Supper. And in the past, on Communion Sundays, I've talked about remembering uh, on a number of occasions. But notice here that there's a second function of the supper. It's in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, the King James says you show the Lord's death. Um, I didn't check other versions. It might say declare, proclaim. The actual word means to proclaim, to announce, to preach, if you will. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not only remembering something, we're saying something, we're, pre we're preaching something. And in, the, in this phrase, you proclaim the Lord's death, we really have a very simple definition of what evangelism really is. You proclaim the Lord's death. And here we see three facets of a very simple definition of evangelism. We see the messenger, which is you. We see the method, which is proclaim. And we see the message, which is the Lord's death. So I want to talk about these three briefly, but I'm going to take them in a little different order. First, I want to talk about the method. Paul says that here, that in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim or show or declare or announce the Lord's death. Now, there's two views of this, and, and, and they're not an antithetical. 
And one is that we shall or proclaim the Lord's death in the sense that the, the elements are physical symbols which, which are used to demonstrate, okay, a, a literal physical demonstration of the Lord's death. The, the wine being the blood, the, the bread uh, being his body, you break the bread, his body was broken. The, the bread and the wine are separate. You, set, you take the blood out of the body, the body dies. So you get what I'm saying? So there's a literal physical showing or s- symbol through symbol or drama, if you will, of the Lord's Supper. So you, you show it and announce it. And some commentators also add the fact that you're also showing your faith in it. Okay? You're declaring that you believe it if you partake in it. Okay? And, and as I said, those are not antithetical. They really go together. So um, the, the, the elements are a, phys, a very simple physical declaration and announcement of the meaning of the Lord's death. So in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim. The, when we talk about... The, the witness of the church, what is often called outreach, evangelism, soul winning, mission, there's many words and you, you'll see there's different fads at different times in the church, different words are popular. When I got saved, which was BC, that's before cassettes. That's uh, when Bruce Jenner was a man, remember those days? Uh, so... Back then, the word was soul winner. Be a soul winner. Be a soul winner. And I, I was given books on how to be a soul winner. Then, I think witnessing became popular, and then evangelism was used more, and you'd see phrases like lifestyle evangelism, and, and then the outreach, the word outreach is used. The big word lately has been what? Do you know? Mission is the word. This is the word. It's like if I get another book sent to me that says mission, I'm going to... Don't need a special mission to recover me from my insanity because everything's about mission. Um, so what, what's the basic idea? What's, what's the basic, here, here's the question. What is the basic method? Method, the, the, the word proclaim is, is a verb. What's the basic method that God has given to the church? Or what is the basic method by which God has people come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. What is the basic method? Well, the basic method isn't actually communion. Now, it's one method, because, as Paul says, we declare through this, this drama. Somebody walked in and knew nothing about Christianity and said, why are those people eating that bread? Why are they drinking that wine? What's that about? You act, you're acting out the drama. But the basic, basic method methodology that God has given his church is simple proclamation. Proclamation. Or announcing something. So God has ordained that the gospel be declared. Now, I believe that the gospel can be demonstrated in many ways. I think you can demonstrate uh, at least aspects of the gospel through your lifestyle. And that's, we see books on lifestyle evangelism. Okay, uh, and and so I agree with that. Certain things that Christians ought to do, or the church ought to do, as a as a witness to Christ, as exemplifying the truths of the gospel, should be done. 
The, but, I, I must add this, and it's very important, is at the end of the day, there has to be words. There has to be a verbal communication. Because symbol has to be interpreted. Okay? Symbol has to be interpreted. Otherwise, the symbol's meaning is purely subjective to the viewer. I grew up in a, in a liturgical church. When I say grew up, I mean we went to church every Sunday. I went to a parochial school, a private Catholic school. And, and so six days a week, I saw a crucifix. You know what a crucifix is? Yeah. It's, it's a cross, but Jesus is still on it. Okay? Six days a week, I saw that. And in school days, I'd see it all day long. And it's a symbol. But I never understood what that symbol meant. I never really understood that Christ died for me, that God loved me, and that Christ died for me, that I could come to know him uh, through his grace by simple faith. I never understood the message. It wasn't explained to me. As a matter of fact, a different message was given to that symbol. So symbol by itself is not sufficient. That doesn't mean we don't live in a way consistent with the gospel. We should. In other words, our lives, our testimonies ought to be uh, not only consistent with the gospel, they ought to cause people to be attracted to the gospel. Or should I say, either attracted or repelled, but not neutral. Now, you'll hear people say, you know, if you just live like Jesus, everybody's going to love you. Well, a little reminder, Jesus was crucified. He was reje- a man of sorrows, rejected of men, okay? Hated. Now, he was profoundly loved, but he was profoundly hated. People really weren't neutral about Jesus. And people still aren't neutral about Jesus, okay? So people will either be drawn to God through you, or they may sense the God in you, and they'll want to go the other way. See? But they shouldn't be indifferent. All that being said and done, even if someone is attracted to Christ through Christ in you, at some point, there has to be a communication. There has to be words. There has to be a spoken message. And that's God's simple method. And when I say simple, as I think as Christians and, and the church, the modern church, I should say, has complicated this thing. I believe way beyond measure. Now, I think we can use all, all media. We can use, you know, cinema, movies, uh, music, we, arts. We can use all of that. But not to eliminate the verbal, but to illustrate the verbal. To enlighten, to convict, to, to whatever. But the one does not erase the other. In the end of the day, if someone's going to come to Christ, they have to have a basic understanding, and that, that understanding comes from a, ver- a verbal or written proclamation. Now, most, I read an article recently where it said 87% of the people in church, this is about America, 87% of the people in church are there because somebody invited them. That's a big percentage. Now, I didn't do any deep research to see if that stat was really accurate, this or that. But the point is, God's, God didn't say, you know, develop this thing and develop that thing and develop this thing. He said, 
talk to people. I mean, it's really that simple. That's what proclamation means. It means you say something to people. And it, it is so simple. I, I, I kind of baffles me why we just, it seems so hard, but it just means talk to people. So the, the method is simply a verbal communication of the gospel. And it goes from one person to another person, or one person maybe to many people, but it's person to person communication. Now, I believe God can use the written word. Uh, my brother got saved from reading. He, he was, someone handed him a Bible, a New Testament. He, they didn't say anything about Jesus. He walked home. He opened it up. Literally, the first thing he opened up was John 3.16. He read it, and he got saved. But that was the proclamation. Okay, there were words. There was a message involved that he had to hear and understand. So... That can happen. I know people that have been, uh, I know guys that have been saved. They're walking down the street, literally. They pick up a track about Jesus. They read it, they get saved. God uses all of these things. But again, there's content there, okay? There's a proclamation in word. Most people come to Christ because someone talks to them about Christ. It's just the way it is. And it's the way it is because that's the way God designed it. That's the way he, he designed it. A person talks to another person, and that's the method. That's all the proclamation really is. So that's the method of, of evangelism. Now let's talk briefly about the messenger. The messenger. Here in this text, Paul says, You proclaim the Lord's death. You. Well, who's you? Well, the you here is all of those who are taking the Lord's Supper. In other words... They were professing Christians. If they were taking the supper, they were professing by their participation in the supper that they were believers in that supper, that they were believers in Jesus, basically. So the you is not the clergy. The you is not pastors. It is not elders. It is not deacons. The you is not even uh, uh, professional evangelists, although... They're part of the you. The you is anybody who takes this supper is a witness. Now, by the very fact that you take the supper, you've witnessed. But if, but if witnessing means proclamation, then that means every Christian who takes the supper is a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. Now, I've read many articles about the, the church in America and, you know, you know, the demographics and how do you reach millennials and all this kind of jazz. And again, I think things get overcomplicated because, the, 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 you know, the, so the question gets asked, you know, is, is the church is in America dead? Is it dying? You know, is God done with America and all this stuff? Well, I know this. Well, this is a proven fact. The, the, church, the church growth in America has been flat for probably 20 years. When I say flat, it doesn't mean there aren't individual churches that grow, but they grow at the expense of other churches that decrease. So one increases, the others decrease. Across the board, in terms of conversions and deaths, when they're compared, it's, pretty been, it's been pretty flat. 
And so, you know, people that write books on these things get frantic and they start, man, we got to do something about this. We got to come up with things to do to fix this. You know? Well, I'm going to propose something very simple. That every Christian would make it a goal to bring someone to Christ within the next 12 months. I mean, make it a goal. That means you pray for, these, for this individual or two or three. And I mean, you really pray that you begin to talk to them about their spiritual condition, that you invite them into your home, that you begin to share your life and faith with them. And I bet if, if every Christian who took the Lord's Supper would make that a goal, you would see many people come to Christ. It isn't that complicated. To be a witness or to be a messenger simply means that you testify. You're a proclaimer. One of the Greek words, as you know, is the word martyria, which is a martyr. So if the, if the primary method is proclamation, the primary instrument is the person, the martyr or the preacher. That's why in, in Romans 10, what, is, what does Paul say? He says, how will they hear without a preacher? Now, when we hear that, we hear the word preacher like, yeah, we need a pastor. That's not what he's saying. It means, how will they hear if no one is talking? Okay. Well, they're not going to hear. Because no one's speaking the message. Now, let me say this before I move on to the third point, and we'll have to wrap soon. So, we have to understand something about the way God works. And the way God works is God always works from the inside out. What I mean is, when God saves you, he first does a work in your soul. It's called regeneration. Now, he does, he does a lot of work. There's a lot of components, if you will, to the glorious thing we call salvation. But you're born again. You have new life. Eternal life is the Spirit of God comes in you, and you are renewed. He changes you in your heart. Okay? And then he changes your position or your standing with him. You're justified, which means you're not condemned. You're accepted into his family. You stand before him in grace. He doesn't frown on you. He smiles on you. You're his child. So he changes your condition and then he changes your identity. And you don't do anything. You just receive it by faith. He does it all. It's grace. Amen? Amen. It's all grace. So this is what we call in grammar the indicative. And I've, I've used these terms before. In grammar, the indicative is a statement of fact. Okay? Now, I, re- I can remember before I came to Christ, people sharing the gospel with me and not... Receiving it, not believing it. And then, of course, I remember when I got born again. I was transformed. Now, the day before I was born again, the gospel was no less true than the day on which I was born again. It was true. It was true before I was saved. It was true the moment I was getting saved. And it was true after I was saved. Because it's true. You don't make it true. It is true. 
So God comes in, He changes you on the inside. And this is, this is the foundation of what you do on the outside. Now I was fortunate that I got saved at a church that wasn't legalistic. Because if I had, it probably would have been out of there in a heartbeat. And they didn't stress, they, they, didn't, they had a lot of young people in the church, and they didn't care how kids dressed when they came to church. They didn't harangue people who were, you know, still had some of their old baggage. And They loved people, they shared the truth of people, and they knew that God changes people from the inside out. And so, God changed, if you're a Christian, you've been changed on the inside, and your standing has been changed before God. Now, what this means in terms of calling is that you, when I say you, I mean the collective you, including me, you are a witness. That's the indicative. Now, I'm going to read a couple of verses. Go to Matthew 5, because I think this is pretty important. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the Beatitudes. Then in 13 through 16, he gives what's called the similitudes. He says in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Okay, when you see the verb are or the verb am, it's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. It is true. You are the salt of the earth. Notice verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. It's a statement of fact. The you meaning those who are who believe in Jesus, Christ followers, disciples, Christians, whatever word you want to use. Okay, so if this is true, this means you are the salt of the earth. So let's hear you say that. Say, I am, I am the salt of the earth. Let's try this one. I am, I am the light of the world. Now, here's what I encourage you to do. I want you to say that to yourself every day. Say it to yourself when you're walking into work. Say it to yourself when you're having lunch with your coworkers. Say it to yourself when you're with your family. Because it's true, because it's an indicative. It's pretty profound when you think about it. Now, if this is true, which it is, if, if I am this, I can't get away from being this. Because I, it's what I am. It's not an imperative. To say I am the light is different than saying you should be the light. You get what I'm saying? If I am the light, I can't not be the light. What can I be? I can be a bright light. I can be a dull light. Right? If I am the salt, I can be salty salt, <laughs> tangy salt, or I can be flavorless salt, but I'm still salt. So the question we have to ask ourselves is not, am I the light? What kind of light am I? Am I a bright light? Does everybody in your workplace know that you are a Christian? They should know. And people at work should either love you or hate you, but not be indifferent toward you. They should know. Because you are the light. And if they don't know, it doesn't mean you're not the light. It means you're a dim light. 
I, could, I want to say you're dim-witted, but that would be an insult. <laughs> I don't want to insult anybody. You're a dim light. But you're still a light. And then Jesus gives an example of putting a light under a bushel because the idea is so absurd to him. I mean, when he said this, I'm sure the disciples laughed. I mean, think about it. Go home, light a lamp, and put it under your bed. Well, that's stupid. Okay? <laughs> Nobody would do that. But we do that. We do do that. Now, so the, the indicative is a statement of fact. And Jesus says to us that we are certain things. Now, look at, go to 2 Corinthians 5 and see what Paul says. Turn there quickly, 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking about the gospel from the view of reconciliation, which is one very important aspect of, of salvation. And he says, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Okay, you have, you, you're new on the inside, you're new on the outside. God changes your standing and your position. You're now a light. You are now salt. You're new. Now, all things are of God who's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are, what? We are ambassadors. Say, I am am an ambassador. ambassador. Indicative. It's It's a fact. You're an ambassador. You're light, you're salt, you're an ambassador. So, now here's the imperative. An imperative is a command. And it's different than the, the indicative because the, the indicative states a fact, the imperative states an exhortation or a command or a prohibition. I'll give you an example. I was talking to my daughter's dog yesterday. <laughs> talking to the dog. And I say to the dog, now we're going to have a grammar lesson. You ready? I say to the dog, sit. Was that an indicative or an imperative? Imperative. Imperative, because it's a command. Did the dog sit? No. (laughs) So there's definitely no fact there that corresponded with the word sit. Okay? Uh, We have a theory the dog might be mentally handicapped, but we're not sure yet. Um... Cute dog, a little slow. So anyway, so I say to the dog, sit. I say, sit. I kind of push on the rear end. Eventually, I get the dog to sit. So the dog's sitting there, fine, calm, sitting. I kind of petting the dog a little bit. I, I keep on calling it a her, but it's a he, right? It. Um, and, I'm, and I'm talking to the dog. And I say to the dog, good dogs obey. (laughs) Good dogs obey. I said this over and over. Good dogs obey. Now that's a fact. That's an indicative, right? Good dogs obey. But when you actually give command to the dog, it's not, it's different. It's an imperative. So, Good dogs obey. But not all dogs obey. Or they don't obey every command. So, 
in Scripture, we have the indicative, and, and, and I could go through many, 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 many descriptions of who we are as individual Christians or who we are as the church because of what Christ has done for us. I've just looked at three. Light, salt, salt light, and bathroom. Just three. But they're all statements of fact. It's like Jesus is petting your head saying, you're an ambassador. You're light. You're salt. But then what happens when he gives a command? See? Because what is the command? The command in Matthew 28 is what? Go. You talk about simple. Go. That's the command. Just go, go what? Go to lunch? I'm going to do that soon. But what, what does he mean? He means go, and he even says teach them to observe. In other words, go and make disciples. In other words, go and proclaim. That's the imperative. Indicatives can't really be changed because you are salt, but you can be bad salt, lousy salt. You are light, but you can be dim light. You're an ambassador. You could be a, a compromised ambassador, if you will, whatever word you want to use. But it's still a fact. But when it comes to an imperative, a command, we're either obedient or not obedient. You see? And that depends on our response to the command. So the church has, is something, but the church is called to do something. And so we are called to go. We're, we're called to proclaim the gospel. Proclaiming is the method, but the messenger is you. The messenger is the salt. The messenger is the light. The messenger is the ambassador. And I heard every one of you say today, I am the light of the world. I heard it. I heard every one of you say, I am the salt of the earth. I heard every one of you say, I am an ambassador for Christ. Well, then the question becomes, are we good ambassadors or no? It all depends if we obey the command to go, which means the command to proclaim, to speak, to share, whatever word you want to use, the gospel. Uh, quickly, uh, Rosaria Butterfield's written a book. I don't know if you've, any of you have read it. She's kind of popular right now because she is a, uh, a redeemed lesbian who is a radical feminist lesbian in, in the university system and then Jesus came into her life and saved her Trans- now, she, now she's a pastor's wife and a homeschool mom you talk about radical differences right? uh, you couldn't get any more different um, but it's a story about her journey if you will and, what's, and I've only read the first chapter and a half but what, what's foundational to the story is that she came to Christ through people. Wasn't reading a book, wasn't watching a movie. I mean, those things are valuable, but it was people. It was real life people. It was actually an older couple, a pastor's wife, who befriended her, invited her over for dinner, got to know her, went to her place for dinner, hung out with her lesbian friends, got to know them. Being clear on their position on that lifestyle, but being loving and sharing the gospel, they built a relationship with her 
that God used to save her and redeem her and transform her life. That's how it's done. Okay? Now, I'm, I, I'm not saying that the church shouldn't do cold turkey witnessing. I think that's valuable, too, because God uses that. But you have, to, you, you, you have to get to know people, and you have to befriend people, and you have to open your... You, first, you open your heart, and if that's real, then you begin to open your home. Amen. And you, you begin to share the message of Christ and the love of Christ in a real way with real people. The world, I mean, the media world is so misleading. Okay? You read a headline, a lot of headlines now in media are what's called clickbait, right? A provocative headline to get you to click on the article. And so much of the public thinking is really um, stereotypical. So we have images in our mind of what a typical fill-in-the-blank is, okay? And the world has an has a image in their mind of what a typical Christian is. And it's all stereotypical. Back in the day, when I wasn't in the ministry full-time, and I worked normal job, secular job, it's amazing how many people told me, and I was always sharing my faith, that people... The people I began to share with said, "You know, I never really met a Christian before. I never really talked to a Christian before. Now, I think they probably did. The problem is, the Christian never said, "Hey, I'm a Christian." And because of that, they had all of these stereotypical images in their mind of what a Christian was like. And of course, they're all bad, right? Because the world has a slant, and Satan has a slant, and they're all bad. And, and many people were shocked to, to meet a Christian who wasn't a weirdo. I know some of you think I'm still a weirdo, but that's a, you know what I mean. They have these really bizarre ideas, you know. It's almost like you're in a cult if you're a Christian. And they meet a real live, breathing Christian who is normal and likes football and does this and does that and has hobbies. And, you know, they're like, wow. And they, it's amazing. A real Christian in flesh and blood. Well, that's, that's the messenger. That's you. That's being salt. That's being light. That's being an ambassador. People have got to know you're a Christian. Then they've got to know you. That's the method that God has designed. Now, if we had time, we'd talk about the message. Maybe we'll do that next week, but I've gone too long. But the point is, is that, let me just sum this up. Who we are in Christ... One aspect of that defines our calling, and or should I, I'll put it this way, who we are defines what we do. In many cases, it doesn't, because we are individuals and we have individual gifts, gifting. But who you, we are fundamentally shapes what we do. And one of the things the church should do, and I say the church collectively and the church individually, is the church is, let me rephrase it, I'm going to say it this way. The church should witness because the church is a witness. Amen. See what I'm saying? Imperative and indicative. They go together. Because of who we are, it shapes what we do. And when we don't live consistently with who we are, then you get this, um, there's an inherent conflict that goes on. And I think that's part of the reasons you see many Christians who are really not very happy Christians. 
Because they're living contrary. And I don't mean living contrary like big, gross sin. But they're not functioning the way God has designed them to function. Now you can eventually, with a big enough hammer, you can get a square peg into a round hole. You can eventually do that. But it does a lot of damage. Okay? And when you live contrary to who you are in Jesus, you're doing damage to yourself. You do damage to your spiritual life. You do damage to your psychological well-being. Okay? As well as the damage that's done eventually to your family or to the culture. But I'm talking about you. We are the light. We can't continue to do what I think many Christians do in America, is they say, someone else will take care of it. Someone else is going to take care of it. Well, who, who, if not us, then who? If not you, then who? There are people that you know that I don't know. I will never get to talk to them. I will never get to share Christ with them unless you bring them here or lead them to Christ and then bring them here. You, you are their light. You are the link between them and eternity. You. So be who you are. Be who God says you are. Be salt, be light, be an ambassador. And I, I can assure you of this, the more that you live according to what you are, the more you experience the reality of the, the, the spiritual life, the reality of the supernatural life, the reality of Christ in your life. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I thank you that um, you have saved us and you have called us and you have defined us. We are what you say we are. And you say that we are light. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a bright light. Lord, you say that we are salt. I pray that we would be a very spicy salt. Lord, you say that we are ambassadors. I pray that we would be bold ambassadors. Lord, whatever obstacle may be in any individual's life, I pray that those might be removed. You might bring them to mind if it's a matter of repenting of the fear of man or, or perhaps laziness or some other sin. Whatever it might be, Lord, we ask that you would remove these obstacles and you would um, use us. We want to see people come to know you. And we want to be instruments in your hand to that end. We pray this in your name. Amen.